0: Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We had quite the treat last week having Julia and Jarrett Ford on the podcast. Thanks to them for the great parenting advice, just letting us kind of see into their lives a little bit. I know I enjoyed that. And I've heard back from several people that really enjoy getting to know them a little bit through the podcast. But I'm back with Terry Fakes this week. And this is a topic that I've really wanted to talk to you about since we started the podcast. And I know that it's going to resonate well with the people who are listening. So this may be the million-dollar question that we get to ask on this podcast. And that is, how do you, Terry Fakes, how do you prepare a lesson? We want to learn everything about how you prepare. But I want to start first and foremost, by saying, I think it was Terry Chapman that introduced me to the concept of a master teacher. So, of course, you have people that are gifted teachers, you have people that are experts on a subject, but then you have a different category of people who really could teach anything because they've mastered the craft of teaching. And I think a lot of times teaching is constructed in ways that are kind of unhelpful if you're not already a good teacher. So you must just be an expert or a great speaker. or You're just naturally gifted. But I think both of us probably share the belief that teaching is something that you grow in. So before we even get right. to the method, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think makes a good teacher? Great question. I mean, there are
1: two ideas that come together here. One is presentation, what the Greeks called rhetoric. And that is being able to persuasively speak, use Certain techniques in the way you speak, certain emotional triggers, etc. That whole idea of rhetoric and presentation and props and all of that. That is important, but behind that, as Socrates found, uh, was the idea of truth, the content of what you're teaching. Ideally, those two line up, but what I think you see in our culture is you see a lot of very gifted speakers, and you hear a lot of very solid presenters of information, those two don't always come together. My core commitments in teaching have always been, and when it comes to uh, teaching the Bible, is first of all to recognize there's the power is in the Word of God, not in the speaker. As God said in uh, when he was talking to Paul, he said, my power is made perfect in weakness. He didn't say, I want the best speaker possible to get the most success, quote, put quote marks around success, with the gospel. So I feel like the power is in the word. Now, you could immediately come back and say, well, does that mean you can be a really lousy teacher? No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Let's just go to the two extremes. No, it doesn't mean you should be a lousy teacher, especially on purpose, nor does it mean that it's all in the teacher. But let's just recognize that the power is in the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And then my second core commitment is this, is the best I can do as a teacher is to make the Bible come alive on its own terms. That's a big deal to me. Making the Bible come alive, uh, I do it with history and uh, archaeology and economics and really trying to get people to feel like they are there. They understand the people. But you can make the Bible come alive with gimmicks and smoke machines and all that. I'm not criticizing and it. I'm maps. saying there are a lot of ways to do it. And, map. and maps. Well, maps. That's, that's yeah. just guaranteed. You have to have maps. Maps. <laughs> But in all seriousness, let the Bible come alive on its own terms. If you put the power in the presenter, that will never last. So let the Bible say what it wants to say and be what it wants to be, because the power is in the word and God is able to convert people, not me. So I remind myself of that every time I teach. So those are my core commitments when it comes to teaching the Bible.
0: Well, I want to camp out on those two things for a little bit because I, you're, you're exactly right how you come to teaching is almost more important than what you do when you're actually teaching the mindset behind it the goals what you're trying to be as a teacher i think is so important even more than your ability to communicate or the things that you use when you're on the stage or the way that you've trained yourself and especially when we we talk about the first thing that you said where it's uh, you have rhetoric on one side you have content on the other mm-hmm. and there's often an exchange that takes place between those two that's true i mean I was thinking about this the other day. You know, what do you look for in a preacher? Well, it's pretty pretty easy, honestly. Somebody who's biblical and good. That's those are my two criteria. But those are really hard to find, right? I mean, especially today, there's there's a big contingency of preachers who think that expository biblical preaching needs to have zero illustration, no humor, right. no nothing that could be conceived of as worldly. And I, I remember sitting in a preaching seminar with Herschel York, and He's a preaching professor at Southern Seminary, and I love his preaching, love his teaching on preaching. And he's talking to these guys, and and these guys are coming from a camp that says, you shouldn't illustrate, you shouldn't tell jokes, you shouldn't tell any more personal stories than necessary, because what you're there to do is to exposit the word. And Mm -hmm. one of the arguments they make, which you hear a lot in this camp of preaching, is um, you shouldn't illustrate, because then what if they remember your illustrations and they don't remember right. your point, and I'll never forget. York says, uh, "So you're worried about them remembering your illustrations?" And they're like, "Yeah." And he says, "As opposed to what? Remembering nothing?" <laughs> like, and his point is, "Look, yeah, illustrating is not wrong, but it, and it's a lot better than being boring." Right. But it's not a it's it's not like you have one or the other. You can either be entertaining or you can be accurate to the biblical text. Right. The goal, I think, that we would both advocate is you need to be good and you need to be biblical. Right. And in fact, I think the most biblical preaching is often the best preaching. Right. When you get a guy that really is interested in, in what the Word says, what it originally meant, what the author is trying to say, and he has really good preaching skills, Right. that's the best combination. That's what we both want. Absolutely. You know, when you think about the
1: skills of speaking, You look at a Jordan Peterson, Mm -hmm. whom I like a lot of things Jordan Peterson says. Uh, You look at a Tony Robbins, motivational speaker, wildly successful. You know how tempting it is. I mean, Satan's put that uh, that idea in my mind many times, and that is, you could build a huge following. And that's true, and people do. Build huge followings with their ability to communicate really well. The question becomes, to what service will I put those talents? And actually, that's a question that every Christian answers. Musical talent, encouragement, whatever gifts you've gotten from God, you have to decide, to what end will I put those talents? And I think you're right. When you take the talents God has given you, and you put them to the end of expositing
0: and preaching the truth of the Word, that's when God can really use it. And that's where your second point, I think, is really helpful. Let the Bible be what it wants to be. Let it say what it wants to say. Bringing the Bible alive, I think that's one of your gifts that Mm -hmm. you've been given in service of the church is to bring the Bible to life, to make the Bible come alive for people who are listening. And when you think about expository preaching, biblical preaching, text-driven preaching, and there's a lot of labels for this, but Let's just assume that you're going to interact with the biblical text in your sermon, which I think right. is a, is, we would all agree is a good idea. Um, whether it's a topical sermon that references a text, whether it's a continuous series through text, however fast or slow you're going, if we're going to define biblical preaching, biblical teaching for that matter... I think the two components that go into what you just said is we want to discover what the text actually means. We want to discover what it meant to its original hearers, what the author meant to the extent that we can. We want to be faithful to the overall message of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, we want to make it come alive to the people who are actually sitting in the room. Right. So it does no good if you preach the book of Romans in a way that the first century Romans would have absolutely loved. Paul already did that. Right. It, it makes a difference that you stay faithful to the message that the first century Romans would have heard. And you bring it to life in the 21st century in a way that those people can engage with. Exactly. And, practice exactly. and that that's a great phrase, bringing the Bible to life, because it builds on some of the themes of Scripture that the Bible is living and active. Right. And showing people that we are really not
1: very different than the people in the first century. If you take away the trappings of technology and all the other things we have... Human nature, I heard a very good argument that was made for this not long ago. If you think about it, human nature hasn't changed in thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Human circumstances have changed, but human nature has not. And I think the word speaks to who we really are. Yeah, that's really true.
0: That's very true. And I feel like the more you preach, the more you figure that out. Right. So with that said, and obviously we could we could spend a ton of time on every topic in this conversation, mm-hmm. but, I, but I think that's a great place to start. What's the intent behind preaching and teaching? Well, we want to stay faithful to the Word. We want to do it with the best skills that we can. And we want to make the Bible come alive to people. How do you go about teaching? So we know you're a good teacher. You've learned to be a good teacher. You talk for a really long time. Right. But give us a little glimpse into preparing for a Wednesday night lesson, maybe. So it's you know Thursday, the day after you just taught. Walk us through your week, your process. What does it look like for you to prepare a lesson?
1: Good question. First of all, uh, let me just throw in something that I'm kind of passionate about, is I don't have a seminary degree in this regard. I went to a Christian college. I studied Bible and I studied mathematics. Went on to grad school, studied mathematics. I think there is, first of all, huge value in a postgraduate seminary degree. You learn techniques. You learn uh, processes. I've been really uh, inspired by what you have learned and other people who have master's degrees of various kinds out of seminaries. But I hope to be encouraging to people that you can learn anything you want to learn. Mm -hmm. There are great resources out there and there is no limit to what you can learn. So my technique is probably not as structured and in that sense, it may not be as good as what you would get from a seminary. But here's what works for me. First, you start with the word. The first thing is to immerse yourself in the text. Even if it's a topical lesson, which I don't teach a lot of topical lessons, I have a lot of topical titles but they end up being planted in a core text is immerse yourself in the Word. We talked about this in another podcast on our uh, talk about your personal study time is being immersed in it. I like to be so immersed and so interested in the text that I can't wait to talk about it. So first of all I begin by reading the text I like to read it in the original language, I like to read it in more than one translation, and then I want to think about the text a little bit. I know that sounds funny, but most people read the text, go immediately to a commentary. I like to think about it. And sometimes I think about it and I go, wow, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I'd like to get some ideas from other people who have come before me. Or I might say, you know, this is what this sounds like to me, But I need context, Mm -hmm. I need history, I need to surround this text a little bit. But first and foremost, I want to think about it a little bit. The second thing I do is then I go to research. Research takes a lot of forms for me. Research starts with commentaries. And I'll give you a couple that I like to recommend because they're not very expensive. And they're pretty useful. The Bible Knowledge Commentary. It's a product of uh, DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. Two volumes, one New Testament, one Old Testament. It uh, comes from a dispensational point of view, but by and large, leaving that aside, you'll find great scholarship and good biblical commentary. And then the new Bible commentary, which is edited by D.A. Carson, it's one volume for the whole Bible, and it's not very expensive. And so if you're a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, I think those are good resources to have. Uh, They're not definitive, but they would be inexpensive, accessible, usable resources. So from there, I would go into the commentaries, uh, some specialized commentaries, depending on what I'm looking at. I like to read a lot of history, secular history, because I'd like to know what Herodotus has to say about this era and how that influenced what's going on. I'd like to know what Tacitus and Josephus had to say. Now, some of this depends on your time. But if you think about it, I gained my knowledge of the scriptures over a 30-year time frame. Don't be in a hurry. You're in this for the long run. So do your research over a long period of time and stay immersed in it. But first of all, read the scripture, think about it. Secondly, research. Get into the text. As I get into the text, I think what you do is really good, Cole. Don't you typically have a Word document and you list each commentary and underneath that you will type in some of the key ideas. You know, I used to teach from a Post-it note. I mean, I would do all my research. This is
0: my method. Yeah, you're. This is something I've never been able to get the hang of. But well, and and it's not a, talk later. You have to you have to adapt to your own yes. taste your own skills and it's
1: not a good idea. After several years of teaching from a post-it note, I realized, wow, you can never reteach that series without re researching that series. So I thought, man, maybe I ought to type some of this in. Mm-hmm. So I would literally immerse myself in it. And then I would jot down a couple key ideas, and then I'd go talk. And I still like that method, but I really like your style, and that is, let's take some notes that could be passed on to someone else and could be useful for me in the future or anybody else. So I write down as I go through the commentaries key ideas, key insights, key references, occasionally a quote or two. So when I do my research, that's how I do it now, in a way that can be transmitted to other people and be helpful to them. And then third, I start making my outline. Once I've read the text, thought about it, done a little research, whatever your time permits you to do. Maybe you just read those two commentaries I mentioned, and that's okay. Then you begin to outline, and you begin to let the text speak. Don't start. You notice I haven't said anything about a thesis or action or application. At this point, I want to let the text tell me what it wants to say. Then my fourth step is two things. Stephen Covey, in his Seven Habits of uh, Successful People, said begin with the end in mind. And that is, what do I want them to walk And This is the question I ask myself. If they could remember one thing out of this lesson, When they walk out, get in the car, and start talking to their spouse or their friend, what do I want it to be? I write that down at the bottom of my page. And then at the top of my page, I say, what does the Scripture want to say, basically? And the answer might be, well, there are several key ideas. And I think, well, you can't teach them all Mm -hmm. in one lesson. What seems to be the main idea? And I will write that down as my thesis statement. So I have a thesis, a summary statement, if you will, at the beginning, I have an outline, and I have an action statement at the end. And that's the basic outline for my talk. I add illustrations, humor, everything at the end. Now I realize that the really good speakers, and I don't consider myself to be a really good speaker, will put that much higher in the hierarchy. To me, I put that at the end of the hierarchy. And uh, I'm not telling you that's right. I'm just saying I want to get the content right, and then I want to add the speaking. I'm not saying my way is better, and some people might say, well, you would do better if you had a little more humor, a few more illustrations, but that's my method.
0: Well, there's a lot in there, and like you said, everybody has to develop their own method, but you know, with a method like that, that's a pretty easy thing to follow. It's pretty easy to... Do your own way within that framework. I think that's really helpful. I mean, I, I think a new teacher could just take that method and begin to do it themselves. And I, I want to expand a little bit on a couple of things that you said. So, obviously, when you're reading the text, you, know, you have some biblical training. You have some training that you've done as far as reading on your own over the years. And obviously, a mastery of the biblical languages is something that's really important when you're teaching. Right. Now, I want to distinguish just for a minute between a lot of things we're going to say, there there are different purposes and levels of teaching. So if you're teaching a Sunday school class, that's different than standing on you know the stage in the sanctuary and preaching to thousands of people. Uh, your Wednesday night class, you're going to stand up there for an hour and teach to a room full of hundreds of people versus somebody who's sitting down with sixth graders and they're trying to explain... Mm-hmm. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Exactly. There are so many different ways that you find yourself preparing lessons and contexts, And just for a moment, I really want to talk about high level. You got lots of time to prepare. You're preaching to a lot of people. You're really bringing everything you have to the text. Obviously, I don't think that you need to engage in in the biblical languages to be a small group leader. I agree. in in my time preparing Sunday school teachers and running our Sunday school program, never once did I tell someone to go take a Greek class. I just the, right. the guys that can do that, great. Uh, if you can't, that's not really necessary to teach a Sunday school class. Of course, sure. I would love it if everybody knew Greek. But let's talk for a minute. Your, your best lesson, your your biggest audience, your best lesson, your most prep, your most polished. Let's talk a little bit about the usefulness of knowing biblical languages. You know, there's the there's the sense that people say, well, we have good English translations, and if they're faithful to the text, then is there anything other than pretentiousness that you can get by knowing the Greek? I mean, what's the value of consulting the original languages?
1: That is a great question, Both, and this is true for both Hebrew and Greek. Uh, first of all, I'm not somebody that uses that a lot for two reasons. One, I don't want to sound pretentious, And, uh, you know, proud, like, gee, I know Hebrew and you don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no point. If you want to build yourself up, that's a great technique. If you want to build up Jesus Christ, that's a terrible technique. Mm -hmm. So I don't do it very often. My criterion on when to bring in the languages is when it makes the Bible come alive. Mm -hmm. When you can point out something that will help them go, oh, wow, God is even more awesome than I realized. And sometimes that happens. So I am sparing in using the original languages. First of all, I think it's useful for me because I there's a tendency in teaching. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think you'll agree. There's a tendency in teaching, if you aren't careful, to read a text and take it to one of your pet ideas. Mm-hmm. I find that if you're careful and disciplined, you let the text speak for itself, you can't really read the original and do that very easily. You, It has to speak for itself. You cannot mangle the Greek or Hebrew as easily as you can
0: mangle the English. I think that's true, and that's why I would say that the Greek and Hebrew are more important for your study than they are for your exactly. delivery. Exactly. And I say that for two reasons on the delivery side of things. Number one, you're you can turn people off by quoting from the Hebrew, from the Greek, Spending a lot of time. In fact, I've heard people say, I've read books on preaching that says you should never, ever, ever mention the original languages. And I probably wouldn't go that far. I think it can be really useful. Mm-hmm. But most of the time that people think that you're signaling your own intelligence, you're really signaling your own pride. And sometimes it's a, it's, right. you're overcompensating for when you really don't know what you're right. talking about. And the second thing, and, I know one of the books that you and I have both read that has been informative over the years is D. A. Carson's exegetical fallacies. Absolutely. And if you want to feel bad about your teaching, just go ahead and <laughs> take that book and read it. I mean I think I don't I can't remember how many it is, it's been a long time since I've read it, but he's got like twenty different kinds oh, of word study fallacies or something like yes. that. And that is the thing I see the most, is when you have somebody who knows just enough Greek or Hebrew to be dangerous in their word studies. Right. So they're either using like an interlinear, which can be a really good tool, mm-hmm. or they're using something like Blue Letter Bible, where they go and get the Strong's number, and then you just apply what one instance of that word could mean to the word right. You know, all over the Bible. And so it's funny, because we would never do that in English. Right. Like if you think about it, we would the, the way that we treat word studies a lot of times is like, well, in this one case, in, in in this one verse, we treat it this way, and so I'm gonna go ahead and cross-apply that over to this verse. Right. That's just not the way that language works. No, it's first not. of all. That's right. And so while I wouldn't discourage people from doing word studies, word studies are really helpful. I would say if you if you know the original languages, one of the things you know is different authors use different words differently. Exactly. And even the same author uses the same word differently in different places. So I always like to counsel people that may not know Greek or Hebrew. If you're going to do a word study, do it in such a way that you radiate out from the usage rather than coming from the outside in. So for example, if you're doing a word study in Ephesians, look at all the uses of that word in Ephesians right. first in that same passage, other, other places in the passage, see how the translators translate it. If they translate it really differently, you probably shouldn't cross-apply that to that text. right? Don't go and take a word in Ephesians and then go find it in the book of Hebrews or go find Mm. it in the book of Acts and think that it means the exact same thing. That would be one thing I would say is if you're going to use the languages, use them correctly. Or at least make an attempt to cover any kind of error you might get into trying to go beyond what you really know. And we're all susceptible to that. That's true. Yeah, there are a couple of good
1: uh, resources that you can use, but you need to be careful. It's like you said, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Uh, Vines is the old expository dictionary of Hebrew and Greek words, and Mounts has issued a publication that's a little more updated. So it's Mounce's Expository Dictionary. And it'll take Hebrew and Greek words and give you a little context around them. And Mounts does a good job of avoiding what you just said, and that is just taking one meaning, you can apply it anywhere you want to, Mm -hmm. give you a little context. One of the things I like to do with word studies, and this is my technique, and that is to take a word, for example, oikodomeo, Mm -hmm. is a Greek word that means basically, I mean, if you broke it down into its constituent parts, it would mean building a house. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not what the word means. Yeah. It's not used for every, where you see oikodomeo, it means, oh, he's building a house. But it allows me to make a word picture. And so I'll say, these are the constituent parts of this verb, is building a house. Now, what it has come to mean, in other words, how this word typically gets used, is to build somebody up, to encourage someone, to build the organization. And I think you can use them as word pictures but if you're legalistic about the meaning, you're going to miss the point.
0: Right. I think everybody's favorite example of that is the word ecclesia. Yes. And we've probably heard this. We may have taught this before. So I'm, I don't want to be too critical about this. But, you know, the word ecclesia is, is a compound word, ek and klesia, but it comes from the verb kaleo. And so you have called out is what it literally right. in its constituent parts means. But that, right. that isn't how you make words function in language, but we've probably all heard a sermon where the ecclesia, which is translated in the New Testament to mean church, Uh is the called out ones. Right. And that is a kind of a cool idea, and it's true, but it's not true from the etymology of that word. That is correct. And when when you do that, you're bringing something to the text that's not there. For example, you see in Acts, the word ecclesia is used to describe a secular gathering. Exactly. And so just the context of that, and again, I I don't want to sit here and say never, ever, ever use the the original languages if you don't know them, but what's the point of the biblical languages? To inform you about the author's original intent. One of the things I really am passionate about with the Greek and with the Hebrew is it's easy to take English words that have multiple meanings and read a slant on them. Right. Like you were saying earlier, it's easy to have everything gravitate to your own reading of the text. But there's something about reading the Greek, and it's not to say that you can't distort the text in Greek, uh, but there is something about reading the text in the Greek that helps you know what shade of the word is in the original. Right. So what what is the actual emphasis of this passage? You see this in verbs all the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people will make points out of passages when what they're what they're calling the main verb is a verb in English but it's a participle that doesn't carry exact verbal authority in the Greek. So right. the great a great example of this is in the great commission. So in the great commission, you know, it's a, it's a participle and I know that there are arguments that there are places where participles can carry imperative value and right. they can be a main verb but it's pretty clear that the point of the great commission in Greek is to make disciples. Right. But When it's used as a missions passage, now that big word at the beginning, go, becomes the point of the verse. Right. Go is an important part of that verse. Right. But it's a subsidiary point to the main part of that verse, which is make disciples. It's a participle that is qualifying the main verb. So all of that to say, the benefit for us in using the original languages is we want to get the text right. Mm -hmm. We don't want to show anybody how much we know. We don't want to do a word study just so we can have a cool thing to share. We don't want to just demonstrate that we can pronounce Greek words or that we can't. But we really want to get the text right. We really want to understand what the text says. And I think any any involvement in the original languages that accomplishes that goal is productive and healthy. I agree. Back to your one thing
1: I would say. Here's how I use the word ekklesia in teaching. It's not to break it down into the called out that's actually better used from the verbs that are used for elect, election, and chosen. That word is interesting for this reason, to me, is ever since the time of Plato, at least, that, as far as we know, 400 years before Jesus, that word was used for a democratic assembly of people. What I think is interesting is that the church co-opted that word of an assembly of people and gave it new enhanced meaning. Jesus and Christians do that all the time. And I think we can still do that. We can take command of the language, take the word community and effectively redefine it Mm -hmm. and show, you know what Acts 2 is talking about? That's what community really is, and we'll show you what it is. I think there are are lessons to be learned, maybe
0: just not always the ones we think. That's a great point. Well, let's talk for a moment about commentaries. Yeah. Commentaries are really, really useful. They can be very confusing. As you mentioned, there's a a great set of resources that are maybe a little bit more than a study Bible, but not something that you're going to have to read 100 pages to teach a lesson. And there are a lot of good lists on the internet i know ligonier's put out a really good one of these and i I just saw in the last week or two that andrew wilson has put out a list of his favorite commentaries Mm. for the old and new testaments and I'll, Mm -hmm. i'll link to those but when you're looking at a commentary or when you're kind of sizing up what you're going to need for a lesson uh like you mentioned start with the text i always think that it's nice to get kind of the plain meaning of the text down and then dive deeper into things maybe that you don't understand or backgrounds like you said reading history, that kind of thing. If you're somebody who's looking to teach maybe a Sunday school class and you want to go a little bit deeper than the Bible Knowledge Commentary, what are some things that have been really helpful for you? Great question.
1: Uh, Let me go on just a little bit of a tangent. Uh, I'm a big believer that geography matters and history matters. And I'm going to sound like an ESV bigot, but I'm not. I like the scholarship in the ESV, and I really like the way Crossway has published useful materials. So let me give you two things. The ESV study Bible can be treated like a commentary. Absolutely. Because it has great notes, has great introductions to the books, it has good little articles, and it has nice maps that I think help you fill in the context, because context is key. The second thing is they've published an ESV Bible Atlas. That has beautiful maps, Beautiful photographs of these areas that, even if you don't use them, you as a teacher will gain some context from it. And it also has a great little history of the whole biblical story. It's scholastically accurate. It's short enough that a Sunday school teacher could read the section on, let's say, uh, the Assyrians conquering Israel. In 722 BC, there's just a few pages, but you will go, wow, I I actually know a lot yeah. about that. So that's not very deep, I realize, but those are
0: very accessible resources. Why am I not surprised that you brought up the ESV Bible <laughs> Atlas in this talk? We should be sponsored by the ESV Bible Atlas. You know, this, we really this should. This podcast that's right. should be presented by the, the ESV Bible Atlas, right. but those are two great resources. I will say, if you're looking to get a little bit deeper The Tyndall Commentary Series is perfect as a mix between uh, the devotional, study Bible side of things and a little bit more technical engagement with the text. So the Tyndall Commentary Series is put out by very, very scholarly authors. I know that uh, Tom Schreiner, for example, is coming out with 1 Corinthians in the Tyndall Mm -hmm. Series here in the next month. I like to read the Tyndall Commentary Series, and we talked about this a little bit. We talked about studying the Bible If you're looking to go deeper with your Bible study, it to me is kind of... It's about the edge of what you can do in your devotional time and not become totally consumed in a heady academic engagement with the text. There's enough in there that is applicational and and geared towards teaching and and developing the text for a sermon that uh, you can get a lot out of it. But it also brings a little bit more scholarly angle to bear on the text. I'm I'm not a big fan of commentaries that are designed for preaching. I right. think ones that come with illustrations already in there can just be a little bit dangerous in, in mm-hmm. that you, you don't want to serve people sloppy seconds. You don't want to right. use somebody else's examples. You certainly don't want to tell somebody else's examples as if they're your own examples. Right. But but I will say the one that I have used a lot is the preaching the word commentary by R. Kent Hughes. Hmm. So he has a volume for every Book of the Bible, and they are usually a selection of sermons that have been preached, but they're very expository, kind of study Bible level sermons. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's pretty helpful. I
1: agree. Um, I would say there's a line between accessible commentaries and scholarly, and I wouldn't cross that line unless you were serious. And then for me, I read a lot of Old Testament Jewish rabbis from the Middle Ages and on. I wouldn't cross that line or into the Talmud or the Mishnah, unless you're really serious. But there are so many accessible resources.
0: Okay. I want to end our time talking about teaching with some practical advice for those who are early on in their teaching or looking to grow as teachers. Because the second part of your process is really devoted to going from the text, from the research, from the bones to the lesson. And having studied preaching quite a bit, having trained a lot of teachers, I think you and I both would say... That's probably the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. You have some people that just won't do the research. They just consistently get the text wrong. And research is probably the key for that. Right. But for the vast majority of people, they're getting the text right. They know kind of what they want to say with it, but they have a hard time going from the text to a lesson. From you know their outline that they have to an actual sermon. So I want to say, if you could give your top two or three things, advice that you would give to a young teacher or just somebody who hasn't taught very much, what would you say? Well, first of all, be aware that when you do your
1: research, you will have far more material than you need. Mm -hmm. And there is that anxiety of getting there and going, oh, no, what if I get to the end and I have 15 minutes left and I have nothing to say? So you will be overprepared. So don't be afraid about culling. Editing your lesson down to some key ideas. I'm glad you defined the word
0: "culling." There, I don't know. I, don't, I didn't know what that word C means. C u l l i n g. Yes. Yeah. So you have to leave trim a lot your lesson out of your lesson. You do, and you know what I like teacher. to
1: do is uh, visually. If you teach from notes, is bold your main points, and then underneath it, you may have a whole paragraph of lesser material, and that can be your security blanket. And that is, talk about your bold points, and if you realize, oh, no, this lesson is going to end 30 minutes before I thought. Well, you have additional information that you could go into, but
0: chances are you won't need most of that. I would say with a lot of young teachers, you fall into one of two camps. There's either the people that they'll read their outlines straight off the page, and they'll be done half the time allowed. And then they'll just kind of stand there and look at you when they're done. And for that, you know, you gotta, you got to have things in there. You need to probably practice out loud. If that's you, that's a good practicing idea. out loud is really important. The second group of people, and I'd say this is probably more common than what I've seen, is people that want to tell you every single thing they know in every sermon. Right. You can't leave a single detail out. And I right. get that because the study is so fascinating and the <laughs> research that you've done is so important. But right. At some point, you've got to cut the stuff that's not absolutely necessary to make your point. Right. So that would be a... Thing I would recommend to to young mm-hmm. teachers and preachers is find when you find yourself in an opportunity to preach. So mm-hmm. you don't preach very often or you don't teach very often, maybe you're subbing or guest preaching somewhere. Don't preach every single thing you know right. in that lesson. You will have another opportunity problem. That's right. So and you don't want to go 30 minutes over. It's yeah.
1: yeah. I like to present when I do it, I outline and I literally outline, because Roman numeral one will be a statement. And there might be supporting information or an illustration or maybe a humorous story under it. But Roman numeral 1, 2, 3, 4, those are my key ideas. And I step back and I only look at those key ideas and I say, does that take me anywhere? Does that take me on a journey? Does it really take me where Paul was taking me through this text or where Jesus was taking me through this parable? And just step back and say, I'm a hearer now. If all I said were these four statements, Roman numeral one, two, three, four, would it take me somewhere? Mm. That helps me get out of the weeds because when you research, you get in the weeds and the weeds are fascinating. But you have to remember the people that are hearing you don't have that background. So
0: your main points should take them somewhere. Yeah, one of the ways that I learned that is in Haddon Robinson's book, Expository Preaching, uh-huh. he has that. Axiom for preaching, which is bullet, not buckshot. Yeah, and the easiest thing to do is get up there and just shotgun spray nine points and twelve subpoints right on everybody. And you're right, they're not biblical scholars. They did not come there to write down every single point. They came there to have the Bible. And the texts come alive to be applied to them. And this is where I draw a little bit of a difference between preaching and teaching. Although I think it's it's dangerous to draw too big a divide between those two. They're they're very similar. But teaching is information-driven. You're explaining the text. You're, You're expositing the text. Preaching to me, and there's a lot of different examples of this, and I've read a lot of different definitions of this, but preaching, the way that preaching differs from teaching is you're still expositing the text and you're still explaining information, but you're doing it in a way where you are intentionally trying to motivate and evoke life change from the text to the audience. Exactly. And you know, I I do have something I'm passionate
1: about on that. First of all, you are a better preacher than I am, and I see myself mainly as a teacher. But I agree, when I preach, I spend a lot of time thinking about the so what. What will I do with this? When I teach, I still ask the same question. And sometimes on my slides, I'll get to the end and I'll go, so what? What do we do with this? But you know, in a a teaching lesson, sometimes I realize the full point of this won't be clear until the third lesson. In -hmm. other words, I have the time to take you somewhere. The second thing is, sometimes my so what is, I just want you to walk out of this room more in awe of God than you were when you came into the room. Mm -hmm. With a sermon... I really prefer that, yes, you think God is awesome, but you walk out with, you know what? I'm convicted, or I'm going to do something different, or I'm going to reach out. And so teaching, it's okay for me to have a so what that is, God is cooler than I ever thought he was. Praise God. Mm.
0: Sermon, probably a little more pointed. Would you agree? I agree. That's where I, I would coach young teachers, young guys especially, if you are a, a data-driven person. So let's say you're in that second group. You're probably tending a little bit more on too much information rather than too little. Mm-hmm. If that's who you are, what I always counsel guys to do is say, when you think you're done, so you've got your outline, you got your illustrations, you, when you think you're done, you probably need at least one more pass over the, over the text of your lesson. And Good I would point. ask this question. Does every single piece of this help me to make my point? Does right. every single part of this support my major point? And there mm-hmm. there are methods where you can get this down to a science. I mean, uh-huh. like I mentioned, Haddon Robinson's message lesson is this way. So with him you come from the text and you have an exegetical proposition. What does the text say? Then you turn the corner into what is your homiletic proposition. What's your sermon's point? And I think that can be really helpful. But whether you're using that kind of rigid method or whether you're just putting a message together, when you get to the end, if you're Mm -hmm. preaching, probably one more pass over the text, smoothing out all the rough edges, all the corners and saying, is this thing streamlined? I mean, is it aerodynamic. Is it high speed, low drag? Because right. that's what a sermon needs exactly. to be. Exactly. Agreed. I think
1: that's very true. Back to the lesson. Lessons probably are a little more forgiving, a teaching lesson, a little more forgiving. And uh, But I still think we it deserves the rigor of saying, does all of this take me somewhere? What I don't like is a data dump, I mean, if you ask me, remember the Winston Churchill saying is, if you want me to talk for an hour, give me five minutes to prepare. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you've had so much experience. I guess you can get up there on Wednesday and talk for an hour. That's true. I'm so fascinated and interested in this. I could talk to you for an hour, but you would be no better off for it. And he said, if you want me to talk for five minutes, give me an hour. And that is, oh, you actually want me to condense this so that you take something important away. So I think lessons deserve that. Can I say one final thing? To most of the teachers I've met, uh, do a good job of researching, and they have a lot of points. But when they get to the presentation, they stop being themselves. Hmm. And I would say the, the single biggest piece of advice I'd give to the average small group or Sunday school teacher is this, is be conversational you're interested in this material, assume that your people will be interested. They will catch your enthusiasm, is just talk to them like you and I are talking right now, very conversationally.
0: If you can do that, trust me, God will do a lot with that. I, I would add on to that. It, that's the problem that most people run into with illustrations, mm-hmm. is the point of an illustration is to make the text press harder, whether that's emotionally, right. rhetorically, logically, right. is to is to, is to to get everything out of the way for the text to press upon the people who are listening. And the best way to do that, the way that you are most equipped to do that, is the way that you probably explain things to people when you're not teaching and preaching. Exactly. So go ahead and do what you naturally do. If you're a good storyteller, tell stories in your sermons and right. in your lessons. If you're not, then you can grow in that. But don't bank on the fact that your stories are just going to keep people on the edge of their seat. Figure out, just ask some of the people that know you really well how you usually talk to them, and then do that. Don't get up there and try and be somebody different. Don't try to be Groeschel. Don't try to be Chandler. Don't try to be whoever your preaching icon is, because they probably explain things the way that they naturally explain things. And unless you're an exact personality DNA match, you probably don't. That's right. And... I think a lot of the mistakes that that teachers make is just trying to be something that they're not. Exactly. And you know what? If you happen to be a good storyteller, almost
1: everything lends itself to a story or an illustration. But let me flip to the other extreme. You're an engineer. You're an accountant. And you're data-oriented. You know what? Most people are fascinated by you say I read a survey from the Pew Research Foundation the other day that said this. And you know, that seems to me that it applies to what we're talking about. You don't have to become a storyteller. Use
0: what you're interested in. They will become interested. And I would say there's different categories of that. Yeah. One of the things I've analyzed in in preaching is people. everybody in preaching motivates. That should be one of your goals. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be a motivational speaker necessarily. You should have more content than that. But everybody's going to motivate when they preach. And the question is, how do you like to motivate? And our culture right now, especially our Christian culture... Pretends at least, or the the facade is they like to be motivated by inspiring stories, right. heartfelt illustrations, the tug of the emotions, and that's true to an extent. If you do right. that, people will listen. But not everybody's good at that. Some people motivate differently. I mm-hmm. would point this out. Now, this is written, not not oral. But uh-huh. C.S. Lewis, for example, Good he's point. obviously a great fantasy storyteller. I mean, I love. Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, sure. But when you read Mere Christianity, you know what he doesn't do? Tell stories. Right. Because the way that C.S. Lewis likes to explain things is through illustrations. Right. So C.S. Lewis motivates or captures you through intrigue, through illumination. Great point. He's not trying to be somebody he's not. Right. So he likes to capture you one way, somebody else captures you another way, one of the things I really love about your teaching is you also capture through intrigue. You bring information to bear in a way that people have never thought about before. Right. And you plant these little time bombs in their in their heads. If they hear it and then all of a sudden a week later something new dawns on them. Mm-hmm. That's what you're uniquely good at. Now you can do more than that too, but Right. You got to know what you're good at. You got to know how you motivate. You got to know how you inspire. If you right. were going to give the locker room talk at halftime, what would you say? What would you do? <laughs> that point. gives you a pretty good insight into who you are. That's right. Now I want to add one one more thing that I, that I would counsel every teacher with, and that is the shape of the text should determine the shape of the sermon. So one of the temptations in teaching and preaching is to start with a really good story or a really good illustration <laughs> yeah. and then build an entire <laughs> yes. lesson around it and you can honestly tell when you're listening when somebody has done that. Uh-huh. And I've done that. I have you, done you that. You have too. you have this story that you just know is going to be and killer. And you get fixated on. Yeah, it. And you just want to tell that story <laughs> yeah. or you just want to use this illustration that you either thought of or you heard somebody else use and you build an entire lesson around it and usually I mean usually you're right. Uh-huh. That is a good story. It is a good yes. illustration. But the problem is usually your sermon or your lesson is not very good. Right. And I, I want to talk just for a minute about how to use illustrations to bolster the text instead of to obscure the text. So every text in Scripture wants to say something. It wants to do something. Exactly. And sometimes it's harder to figure that out than others. The epistles are pretty easy to figure out what Paul or John or Peter is saying. That's why they're mm-hmm. written in the genre that they're written in, is they're easy to tell what they want you to know or do. Narrative can be a little bit harder right. to figure out what the text is actually doing. And that's where a good commentary should come in and help you put a framework around the text so that you don't just take a story out of context and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. right? But once you've kind of figured out what the text is saying and doing you want to streamline all of your illustrations for that purpose. So you don't want three points in a sermon, three completely different action items, three completely different uh, tones and impulses, and three different directions for your sermon or lesson. You can have diversity in a lesson, but all of it needs to come under the umbrella of what you think the text is actually doing. Mm -hmm. And once you've got that, once you've got a framework, once you've got an outline for that, Pick illustrations, pick stories, pick uh, little runs that you're going to go on in the sermon to do what you think the text is already doing. Exactly. Now, you can obviously take this out of context. Mm -hmm. And you can say, well, does that mean that every sermon on Ecclesiastes needs to be preached with moaning existential angst? No, not necessarily. But it does mean if you're preaching a, let's say you're preaching a psalm of lament, Mm-hmm. Don't turn that thing into a celebration sermon for your church's 10th anniversary. That's, that's just not a good way to right. do that. If you're looking at something where Paul is criticizing, if, he is, if he's talking to false teachers, make sure that you're addressing false teaching. Right. Make sure that you keep a similar tone to what the text is doing. And in that way, what you do is you take illustrations and you make them subservient to what the text is doing as opposed to what I think is probably the number one error in preaching, which is taking the text and making it subservient to what you want to do with your illustrations, with your points, with your packaging, with your three words that all begin with the same letter. I mean, let the text shape the message. I think that's important, and I I have some sympathy for this, but I
1: completely agree with you. I think the reason sometimes people do that is they hear a really good preacher And they hear really good illustrations. I mean I remember Matt Chandler, I'm picking on him because this was one of the best I've heard in a long time. He was talking about sin and he used an illustration of a TV show that he saw about uh, a person posing in a commercial with a lion and this lion who was supposedly tame turned and attacked the person. They lived, etc. But he said, you know, just like that, what would you expect? It's a lion. You can't ever really tame a lion. And then he said, sin is that way. That was a brilliant you know, illustration but it was very much in subservience to what the text wanted to say. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when we hear that, we go, man, I wish I could tell brilliant illustrations like that. Right. And so we gravitate to the illustration. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons, and you, by the way, you will be successful doing that. You will get a following. Yeah. You might not be a good preacher, and God may not commend you for it, but you will personally get a following. You will. But you will. that's why I like to do that last is I want, to ha- I want to know what the text says, and then I want to add illustrations to it. Absolutely. For example, uh, the last sermon, or one of the last ones that I preached uh, at Crossings, is I was talking about the life of Paul. I wanted to talk about sometimes God calls us to hardship, and I wanted to encourage people, because I believe that's what this lesson wanted to do, was to say, sometimes God calls us to paths that also have hardship in them, but take heart. And so... After I finished that lesson, I came back and I remembered Ernest Shackleton's advertisement for the expedition to the South Pole. And it, it's brilliant. I mean, it's like people wanted for an, an expedition. It'll be hard. There's not much money. You probably won't survive. But there's great glory if we succeed. And so I tacked that on the front. And if you listen to that sermon, you go, man, that's just a killer illustration. Uh, And I'm bragging on myself. My point is that came last, Mm. not first, because it happened to go along with the lesson. But I know what you mean. And boy, sometimes you get a great personal story. And no offense, but those of you that have young kids, I did this too. You always want to tell a story about your kids. Trust me. Other people are not as interested as you are in your kids. (laughs) Use them sparingly. Right, Right. But we get these killer illustrations, and we're tempted to build a
0: lesson around it. Well, to conclude, to kind of wrap this up, and I know we'll talk more about teaching in the future, but I think this has been a really good start. So a question I want to know, this happens to me. I know it probably has happened to you. As a final word, what do you do when you bomb? When you walk off the stage and you're like that just wasn't good there is nothing about that and sometimes you know that when you're teaching that's a really bad feeling when you're halfway through your message and you're like no it's not nobody connected. is listening nobody right. cares and you end up sometimes doing really dumb stuff to overcompensate for that right but that feeling when you get done and you're like that just wasn't good yeah. what do you do give us a final encouragement i, on I that. will
1: give you some encouragement um uh, it starts at the beginning of the lesson. When I walk onto the stage, I think about two scriptures. Every time I teach, the first is James three one, Be not many of you teachers will be held to a higher standard. That humbles me because I know I cannot meet a higher standard. And it's only by the grace of Jesus Christ that I can do this. Second thing is 1 Corinthians eight one, the first part. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so go out there with zeal for the word and compassion for the people. That's how I start. Now, when I walk off, I'll make a confession to you. I've never walked off the stage and thought, that was brilliant. That was a great lesson. I've always walking off go, Lord, I pray you do something with that because that could have been better. I don't get down on myself, but I realize, oh, there's certain things that just could have been better, but Lord, do what you will with it. I've walked off feeling like, Terry, by anybody's standards, that was a bomb. And I still say the same thing to myself as well. Learn your lesson. Move on and trust the Holy Spirit to do something with it. Have you ever had a situation where you taught a lesson you thought was terrible? And a few weeks later, somebody comes up and says, Cole, you said something in this lesson that
0: really was spoke to my heart. And you go, are you kidding you must be the only person. Yeah, the, the best thing is when they tell you that something in your lesson really spoke to them and you don't remember saying it. <laughs> they heard something different than what you preached. Right. And I would just say there are a lot of there are a lot of sermons, there are a lot of lessons where you get done and you're like there's no way anybody was impacted by that. That was not good. And I would just say look, preaching is a spiritual exercise. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the message. Nobody becomes a great teacher by teaching one good lesson. Right, One good sermon doesn't make a great preacher. And I would go back, I would close this with what I started with. My
1: first core commitment is the power is in the Word. It's not really in me.